Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, January 9th, 2006, at the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we present a discussion of some real-world issues revolving around implementation of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Our guest is Dr. Michael A. Gropper, MD, Ph.D., from the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Gropper is the Director of Critical Care Medicine for the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. In addition, he is a professor of anesthesia and physiology at the medical school. Dr. Gropper has had a long-standing interest in acute lung injury and sepsis, having published numerous articles ranging from basic science to clinical research in the area. In addition to his other responsibilities, he is also the chair for medical quality at UCSF Medical Center. We're very excited about having him here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rich. I thought we'd begin, as I like to do in most of these podcasts, by having you tell us a little bit about your personal background to share that with the members of SCCM before we get into the uh, campaign implementation issues. I graduated from the University of California at Davis in, uh, in human physiology uh, and then uh, pursued a PhD degree at, at UCSF uh, working with Norman Staub, one of the real pioneers in uh, ARDS uh, and pulmonary edema. Uh, from that point, I, I went to medical school at UCLA uh, followed by uh, internship in internal medicine and then residency in anesthesia at UCSF. Uh, after that, I, I did a critical care fellowship at UCSF, and I've stayed on ever since. And when you were, uh, when did you decide that you were interested in critical care? Was that during your residency or, or actually when you were doing your Ph.D.? Yeah, I actually date, dated back to when I was doing my Ph.D. I had the good fortune of, of working with Dr. Staub, but also meeting uh, two of my mentors, Michael Mathe, who I think you're interviewing later, and also Janine Wiener-Kronish, and, and working with them in the laboratory and talking to them about their early careers in, in medicine, and particularly in critical care medicine, uh, is when I first uh, developed an interest in uh, critical care medicine, particularly since it fed in so well with my interest in physiology. So um, actually, before we get into a discussion of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the changes you've seen in critical care, how you personally decided to enter critical care through anesthesia uh, rather than pulmonary critical care. Well, it's a good question. When I was working in the laboratory, I was exposed to both anesthesiologists and pulmonologists. And as I began my medical training, and thought my goal was certainly to go into critical care medicine. Uh, and then working in particular with Janine Wiener-Kronish, uh, who had trained both in, or in all of medicine, pulmonary critical care, and then anesthesia, uh, began to learn more about what goes on in the operating room. And I guess I think it's my real strong interest in human physiology and the operating room being like a physiology laboratory. I felt like when I wasn't doing critical care medicine that I would like to work in the operating room, and I, it's still one of my favorite things is, is to work in the operating room. 
So it was it was unusual to enter critical care through anesthesia. However, not so much at UCSF, where critical care medicine has always been uh, managed by the Department of Anesthesia, uh, dating back to George Gregory when he started one of the first pediatric ICUs in the world. And so we have a strong tradition of anesthesia and critical care at UCSF. And from what I've learned, uh, both from you and from my other podcasts, that in Europe it isn't unusual at all for anesthesiologists to be involved in critical care. Right. In Europe, it's more of the model that, in fact, both emergency medicine and critical care medicine are, is done by uh, anesthesiologists. They'll call it reanimation in France uh, or resuscitation medicine. Uh, so it is a little unusual in uh, the United States. It's unusual that I'm, I'm director of a, a medical intensive care unit as an anesthesiologist, but uh, as I say, it's a strong tradition at UCSF. And then one other area before we get into this is, again, at UCSF, there's this unique I, we call it, a, I guess, a section of critical care where you and, and Dr. Mathay work very closely with each other. Dr. Mathay is a pulmonary critical care doctor and you as an anesthesia critical care doctor, at least from a fellow's perspective, fairly seamlessly during the course of a, of a particular day in an ICU. It is an unusual structure in that, that uh, we have a group of uh, attending physicians in critical care. There are 16 of us uh, and 10 anesthesiologists and six pulmonologists, and, and we work as a team. There's no different difference in the ICUs that we attend in or, or how we manage uh, our practices. Um, I think we see all the patients uh, that are critically ill in the hospital, regardless of what uh, service they're from. We provide both closed and uh, cons required consultative ICU services. I th we have a multidisciplinary fellowship, and I think that's something that we all very much enjoy, seeing different types of patients, uh, not just medical or not just surgical patients. We see neurosurgical, cardiac surgery, transplant patients, and I think that's something that adds to our job satisfaction quite a bit, not to mention working with fellows coming from different disciplines that, that keep, uh, keep us learning. And so if I were asking you your personal opinion on the concept of going right out of medical school and becoming an intensivist or having a residency in critical care, do you want to share with your, your opinions about that? I have to admit that I haven't decided as yet. Um, we're fortunate to have uh, Mitchell Fink as a visiting professor this fall, and we, we spent a lot of time talking about that. I think there are advantages and disadvantages. I think the academic structure is not yet in place. Um, there is no residency in critical care medicine. Uh, and then the also, you know, how do you advance uh, in the academic world as a professor of critical care when there's really no benchmark, whereas we have those benchmarks for, say, internal medicine or anesthesia. Uh, and many of us also like our, uh, learning from our primary specialties. So I think it's still a work in progress. It, it may eventually turn out to be that way because I will say that critical care medicine uh, practiced by a surgeon or internist or uh, anesthesiologist is much more similar than it is different, and it's likely that we should have a single examination and probably single training programs. Well, why don't we use that to segue into a discussion of one of the most important uh, documents that have come out in the last couple of years in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. And I do remember when I was a fellow, we were going over some of the articles that this was based on as they were coming out. And uh, they were met with enthusiasm, but there was uh, certainly some controversy surrounding them as we were reading the initial articles, specifically the Manny Rivers study. And I was wondering if you could share with the members of SCCM your experience as an ICU director implementing these at an academic medical center, what went well, what went uh, not so well, and what were some of the challenges? Well, if, if I think about you know, what is the most important part of my administrative job as director of critical care, it's to to improve the quality of care and outcomes of our patients in the ICU. I'm fortunate that the, the structure that we have allows us to implement these processes across all of the ICUs, and we, we do look at the evidence and, and try to implement evidence-based medicine. Uh, unfortunately, I think when you look at the average patient, and, and I try to emphasize this on rounds, is 
uh, if you look at the average patient, say, that's in septic shock, it's likely, uh, and having done a lot of clinical trials, I'm uh, sorely aware of this, that that particular patient wouldn't have been enrolled, say, in the early goal-directed therapy trial for whatever reason. They were too old, they're too young, they have some other coexisting illness that would have excluded them from that trial. So uh, applying broad uh, mandates is probably not the right way to implement things. To have successful implementation, I would say the, the first thing is that you need to meet with the nurses because in, invariably it's the nurses that have to implement the care at the bedside. And commonly you'll find a group of physicians getting into a conference room and uh, looking at an article and agreeing that this is a good thing to do and uh, we should mandate that this be done and they write up uh, some sort of mandate and then hand it off. And that's not even the beginning of the process. Uh, you have to have the nurses say, respiratory therapists, uh, other people involved from the very beginning of the process so that you don't come up with plans that just can't possibly be implemented. And um, one of the other challenges, uh, let me go back to a previous statement you made, uh, but on the other hand, it seems that there are multiple times in critical care that implementing a standard approach to something seems to be good, even if it isn't a, a right way. I remember you taught me that, you know, having a weaning protocol, no matter what, or, of both sedation or the ventilator, seems to be better than not having one, even if it's not uh, the same from one hospital to another. Well, absolutely, and I think the early goal-directed therapy is, is a good example. There are those that, that may or may not believe in some components of that, for example, transfusing patients up to a hemoglobin of 10 or using uh, central venous oxygen saturation. However, I don't think uh, you could find a, a cogent argument for delaying resuscitation. And so by we've put in a program around resuscitating patients with sepsis, looking at early goal-directed therapy, and it's really getting these these patients early attention, getting blood cultures, getting them their antibiotics quickly, getting them fluid resuscitated in a, in a thoughtful way. Uh, with the change in the practice of medicine, particularly with the implementation of the 80-hour work week, uh, care is more fragmented than ever. And the more that you can standardize care uh, and create some guidelines for the house staff, I think that you're going to improve care and we're studying that right now. So one of the, the major issues, and then we'll delve into some of the components if we could, is that it's fundamentally going to be an interface between ER physicians and critical care physicians, because if it's early goal-directed therapy, m most of the time they're going to be patients presenting to an emergency department. And do you want to start there discussing uh, some of the challenges? Right. Well, you know, all these things start with good communication, and uh, we're fortunate that actually one of the, our uh, young emergency department attending physicians approached me very early on with an interest in this, and so it's been a very uh, fruitful process, and in fact has improved our communication around care of, of all patients, not so just So a those. champion, yet again a champion. Absolutely have to have a champion, a physician champion, and a nursing champion, and so we, I have a clinical nurse specialist, Hildy Shell, who's been essential with getting our programs implemented, and there was someone, uh, Ginny Wynn, uh, in the emergency department as well. And, and so having those champions, it took many meetings to get this implemented, uh, meeting with, with all uh, people in both departments. For example, most emergency department nurses are not comfortable with transducing central venous pressure, setting up the transducers, interpretation of the values. Uh, that's a significant uh, training component that, in fact, the hospital will probably have to support us. They'll have to provide the time and salary support for those nurses to be trained. So you had to get fundamental buy-in from the nursing leadership to allow there to be new in-services for all the ER nurses and things like that? Absolutely. You need to meet with, with the director of nursing and, and emphasize uh, to that director of nursing and also those in the hospital administration that ultimately this, not only will this improve outcomes, it's likely to uh, save money for the medical center as well.
So then something like the publication of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, even if the content uh, may not be fully agreed upon, is helpful to present it to uh, leadership of nursing and administration that is considered to be sort of an early standard of care, or is that too strong of a word? Um, I, I think it's a little strong, but I will say that you'd be surprised at how aware that the hospital administrators are uh, about guidelines like this. Maybe not so much the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines, but these guidelines have been taken up by groups like uh, IHI, which has a very powerful impact on hospitals, and, and uh, certainly our hospital CEO is keenly aware of their recommendations and, and, and plans to follow them and is willing to commit the resources required to follow those recommendations. Um, I remember when uh, you and I were discussing this in the past, some of the challenges were unexpected. I remember you were mentioning one of them was, uh, and every hospital must have different ones, we can easily measure lactate through our ABGs, but you said that that was not uh, such an easy thing to do in your hospital? Well, I think probably the biggest challenge, for example, in the surviving sepsis guidelines was how do we take a uh, heterogeneous population of patients coming into the emergency department? For example, if you, if you look at SERS criteria, most patients with a bad case of the flu will, will meet the SERS criteria certainly don't want to be uh, putting a central line in those patients and admitting them to the ICU. So we, we started with those adding a suspected source of bacterial infection. And in fact, uh, as a triage point, used a couple of things. One was uh, if the attending physician in the emergency department felt uh, the patient was sick enough to require uh, blood cultures, then the patient would be entered into the pathway that would evaluate them for sepsis resuscitation. And was this integrated into like a, an ICU consult at that point or not necessarily? No, we didn't want uh, we're, our ICU fellows uh, and, and house staff and attendings are very busy. We didn't, again, want to be called to the emergency department for a, a bad case of the flu. So at that point, uh, then uh, we did send a lactate. And if the lactate was above four, then it would uh, start a, a cascade where the, a critical care fellow would be called, come to the emergency department and evaluate the patient. And if uh, the lactate was positive and they felt the patient was septic, then they would start the early goal-directed therapy. And, and um, you said that there was a, you set up a sepsis team or a separate pager or something? Yeah, we uh, have a pager that is really just the, the on-call fellows pager. Uh, and so the emergency department could call the fellow directly. And they like that because one of the things the emergency department doesn't want to do is to have critically ill patients staying in the emergency department. And uh, I was able to convince them that by activating our fellow early, it's likely that the patient would be brought up to the intensive care unit earlier than if they went through the usual channels of uh, waiting, for example, for the house staff from the Department of, department of Medicine or Surgery to see the patient. Have you been happy with how this has all been playing itself out? I have. I think it's had some uh, some speed bumps. Uh, as I said, it's required some training, significant training of the emergency department nursing staff. It required uh, investment in some equipment. We used the, uh, the Edwards precept catheter, and so we had to have the monitors in service for those monitors, uh, getting the catheters. But I think overall, the, the house staff has embraced it. It takes a lot of work on my part. I frequently go to uh, grand rounds for a number of different departments and talk to them about early goal-directed therapy and, and about evidence-based practice and critical care, uh, going to uh, uh, QA and M&M conferences, particularly in the Department of Medicine, to try to get the house staff familiar with that, and then just creating some easy-to-use cards that they can carry around, uh, both to get uh, help from the critical care uh, fellows, but also to give them guidelines about how to get this going. What you don't want is for the for the house staff to feel like uh, when the you know interesting patient with sepsis come in that they lose control of that patient. Uh, the fellows are there to provide guidance, uh, help with the procedural issues like placing the central venous pressure catheter, but I want the house staff, uh, interns and residents, to, to embrace this and, and learn about it, not just hand it off. 
So, so again, this theme that's come up uh, in my life fairly frequently and in the podcast that protocols and guidelines are important. They help to standardize care when it's been shown to be beneficial, but still letting clinicians be clinicians when it's appropriate for reassessing when it may not be appropriate to use the, the guidelines. Uh, absolutely. And, and as I started out by saying, there are, you know, we apply these uh, processes to, to a broad uh, spectrum of patients, and there's some in which it may not be appropriate. There are other cases, however, where I think that um, you may want to allow less flexibility from the house staff. For example, I mean, we have a standardized weaning protocol in our ICU, and unless the patient is extremely unstable, they will move towards a spontaneous breathing trial. I don't want to rely uh, on uh, house staff remembering to wean the patient from the ventilator. Uh, The important work that's been done by Wes Ely and others has shown that you you need to get that into the hands of the the practitioners at the bedside, uh, and that will improve care. Uh, with house staff moving through, attending physicians as well, uh, you just don't have enough continuity that you can rely on that. You need to put system uh, approaches in place that will improve the patient care. Well, um, given your background, you're obviously well aware of the emphasis on measurement and benchmarking and all of this. How has that that been going for your institution with these sets of guidelines? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. I mean, you bring up uh, 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 one of my favorite topics, uh, both for good and bad. Um, I, the measurement and benchmarking, uh, I think, is most important for providing feedback to the, particularly to the to the nurses and, and other practitioners at the bedside that what they're doing is improving care. So, for example, we put in place a project around elevating the head of the bed uh, in the ICU, and we established some baseline data that showed it was only about 65% of the patients had the, the head of the bed elevated at 30 degrees, put in place an educational program, and, in fact, again, the hospital was supportive. They actually... Uh, allowed us to choose that as a quality incentive, and, and employees will receive a cash incentive if, <laughs> as a group, uh, they're able to achieve uh, a certain uh, goal. And our goal was to have 90% of the patients have the head of the bed elevated, and we, and we achieved that easily. Not only do the cash incentives help, but also just sharing the data with the nurses to show that they're actually performing. And, in fact, we set up a little bit of a competition between ICUs to show that the different ICUs may have different performance. Uh, and I think that also motivates the staff as well. And you had like a team that would go measure that the head of the bed were appropriate and all that? Right. So we would have a nurse specialist going around and measuring the head of the bed, talking to the nurses. We, we did a little bit of an advertising campaign with flyers up in the ICU in the break room, and that's worked very well. Um, so ben- who, who decided, like, how does it get decided at your institution which particular educational initiative like that is to go first? This is absolutely fascinating. Well, there's, there's an, for example, the, the institution, at least for the last couple of years, has, has focused, has, they have incentives for all employees of the medical center. In the last two years, all the incentives are focused on patient safety. Um, and so we have used, uh, this year in particular, we're, we're using the IHI guidelines. Uh, and so uh, each unit is allowed to choose something that focuses on patient safety, whether that be two patient identifiers before a procedure, uh, in, in the critical care division, it, it's around ventilator-associated pneumonia and catheter-related bloodstream infection. And so uh, <clears throat> the nursing and medical leadership work uh, to develop something. For example, we'll say that we're going to reduce ventilator-associated pneumonia by 50% over the next year. Um, you have to make sure that that's an achievable goal because I think it has a negative effect on morale if you set something that's unachievable and don't provide the resources that are necessary. 
But you, you bring up a really interesting point, and we're getting towards the end of the interview, but I just wanted to discuss this with you, is that uh, I was just reading in Critical Care Medicine, uh, Dr. Curtis and others published another task force guideline, and they were discussing this concept of whether or not the best way to see if an ICU is doing well is to measure outcomes or process. And you actually just measured one example. You, you mentioned one example of each. One was, is the head of the bed elevated? And the other is, have we decreased VAP? And I'm sharing with you my perhaps naive thoughts is that I would prefer if in my unit they were measuring the process and that was the consensus from that article is is because uh, critically ill patients and caring for them can be so fundamentally uh, unpredictable often that I would think measuring the process would be more of a fair way to do it. Well, I agree with you. I, I think the outcomes, first of all, can be very difficult to measure. For example, if you want to measure catheter-related bloodstream infections, you you know we will place a catheter in the, in the ICU the patient will recover, go to the ward, and keep that catheter for three to five days, let's say. And we don't have the resources to track actually when the catheter is removed, and so you don't have the denominator you need to measure or you that. may, Or you might have removed it, and it gets left in for reasons. Exactly. So, no, I actually also agree with the process, and I think, you know, the work that Baron Holtz uh, uh, and others did at Johns Hopkins where they said, you know, uh, and we deal with benchmarks a lot. They said, you know, you can disagree about what the benchmark should be, what's an acceptable rate of VAP or catheter-related infection, but let's just target zero. And that really is focusing on the process because I think data is very difficult to generate. Another example is that, for example, uh, LeapFrog, which I think has done very important work, um, judges the quality of, of a program, and they publish this data publicly on their website about a medical center. Uh, the quality of, of cardiac surgery, for example, in a medical center is dependent on reaching a threshold of a certain number of procedures. I think it's 400 per year. Um, it's a surrogate for quality. You could do 200 procedures and do them extremely well, and you could do 1,000 procedures and do them poorly. So the number in and of itself probably shouldn't be a quality measure, uh, but it's measurable. And so uh, it's, it's reasonable to, to to measure something you can measure, and, and the outcome of cardiac surgery, if you want to start to look at mortality and things like that, the risk adjustment uh, is still a very much a work in progress. And a lot of those, uh, those of us involved in benchmarking uh, are skeptical. I'll give an example is that you know, we frequently exceed our benchmark for, for length of ICU stay in patients with respiratory failure. Well, if I round in the ICU as I did yesterday and find four patients that have been waiting for two days for a, a bed on the ward because the hospital is too full, that works against my benchmark saying they stayed in the ICU too long. Yeah, that, that was exactly one of my main examples of that is that length of stay in the ICU can be such a complex issue and many of those factors are out of the control of the intensivist. Right. Some hospitals have large, uh, uh, large number of, for example, step-down or intermediate care beds, and others don't. And so patients may, those that don't have them, patients stay in the ICU longer until they can go to a regular ward. Um, one of the other areas that I know is one of your areas of interest is tight glucose control, and I know that you've done some academic work with that at UCSF, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, that's a good question. I, I think that's been one of the most interesting projects that we've done. Uh, based on the Vandenberg study and others, um, a couple years ago, we decided that we would like to, to improve our glycemic control in the ICU. Uh, and it's a good example of how to get this up and running. We got a multidisciplinary committee together with myself, uh, nurse specialists both from uh, diabetes care uh, and from the ICU, and then one of our diabetologists, uh, who, an endocrinologist. Uh, we went through approximately 40 versions of a, a glycemic control protocol. Wow. It, it was a lot of work. Um, but we came up with a protocol, and then uh, implementing it was, was difficult as well. Uh, again, our nurse specialist uh, trained the nurses and then did very close monitoring of glucose levels. Uh, in one ICU, we have uh, four adult ICUs, and we, we started out with one ICU to watch it very closely to watch out for hypoglycemia. 
Can I ask you about the revisions just before we get into more of the details? Because I was talking with Terry Clemmer about that yesterday, and he was saying that that is perhaps the most important part of the whole process is sort of doing a series of rapid revisions early on. Exactly. Well, we didn't publish the final, uh, as I said, the, the final or the semi-final document that was published was about our 40th version. Uh, and those were based both on discussions and then also on, on real-life uh, testing and implementation. Uh, and so we had to make sure that it wasn't too complicated for the nurses uh, to follow. It didn't require too much blood sampling. But I'll give you an example of how one of these processes, uh, which is well-meaning but can have unintended consequences. So we did a workflow analysis of our uh, protocol, which is very similar to that uh, used by Vandenberg and others. Uh, we watched an, a nurse having to obtain either blood from an arterial line, which involves obviously sampling the line, uh, flushing it, uh, getting the glucometer, uh, testing the glucose, checking uh, that against a protocol, and then making an adjustment. Um, it looks like it takes about six to seven minutes for a nurse to do that simple intervention, which doesn't sound too bad. But then we looked at when a patient was on our tight glycemic control protocol, they're getting between 20 and 24 measurements a day. Uh, if a nurse has two patients, it's overwhelming. It's a huge workload for those nurses. And you have to, to ask yourself, what is it that the nurse no longer has time to do now that they're spending so much time measuring and adjusting glucose? So there, there can be unintended consequences. So you want to track not only hypoglycemia uh, as a side effect of the protocol, but you also want to make sure that wound care uh, and other interventions, uh, that there aren't other medication errors because the nurse is now in a hurry because of spending so much time on glycemic control. You need to track other unintended consequences. We've been speaking today with Michael A. Gropper, MD, PhD. He's a professor of anesthesiology and critical care and physiology and the director of critical care at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center here in San Francisco, California. Um, and Michael, I've been talking to you for years, and I look forward to talking to you more, and I've had the pleasure of you being my personal mentor, and thank you for being with us today. Well, Rich, I've really enjoyed it, and it's very gratifying to me to see that you're, that you're doing this important job. This concludes our podcast for Monday, January 9th, 2006. The Society's Critical Care Congress offers the opportunity to hear from critical care experts on a variety of cutting-edge topics. For more information about upcoming sepsis workshops during Society activities, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.